Hey guys, I'm Jerry. And I'm Tracy. We are the host of Hillbilly Horror Stories. What we do every week is we tell you mostly paranormal stories, and then we throw in a couple of uh, unsolved mysteries, maybe a little bit of true crime if it's creepy enough. And the beauty of this is that Tracy doesn't know the show, correct? This is correct. Never do. So then what happens when you don't know the show? I'm just as surprised as anybody else is. And that's the beauty of what our show is. We basically get the same reactions out of Tracy as what the listener at home is getting, and I think that's been the success to our show so far. Yeah, I think it works. We also use our show to promote mental health awareness and suicide awareness every show, so we get the added bonus of trying to help people out while you get those in the paranormal shows. Amen, and that's what's important to us. So please subscribe to Hillbilly Horror Stories wherever you listen to your other podcasts. Throughout the 70s and early 80s, the U.S. Secret Service was bedeviled by an elusive foe known as the Mall Passer, a skilled and prolific counterfeiter who had passed hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of counterfeit bills across 38 states. When a man going by the name Roger Colin Blanchard was arrested in Maryville, Tennessee in 1983, the true identity of the Mall Passer was revealed to be James Mitchell de Bartolaban a con artist with a prodigious history of crimes both petty and deadly serious. Investigations revealed printing and distributing counterfeit money was but the tip of an increasingly depraved iceberg in the life of a man who would be described by some investigators as the most dangerous felon ever at large in America and one whose criminal pathology was unmatched anywhere for its sadism, its scope, and its success at eluding detection. DeBarlo Laban, it turned out, was a prolific kidnapper, torturer, serial rapist, and likely serial killer whose hideous crimes and criminal pathology had been voluminously recorded and documented in photos, audio tape, video, and in diaries, including a chillingly lucid passage FBI criminologists described as a manifesto of sadism, which is employed to understand the psychology of the true sexual sadist described by profiler Roy Hazelwood as the most dangerous of all aberrant defenders, the great white shark of deviant crime, marked by wildly complex fantasy worlds, unequal criminal cunning, paranoia, insatiable sexual hunger, and enormous capacity for destruction. This is the golden age of serial murder. Hello, welcome to the golden age of serial murder. This is Simeon with Toby. People may hear that uh, we have a new audio setup, or at least I do, I've got. And uh, this episode is going to be about a guy with a bit of a long-winded name, James Mitchell, or known as Mike DeBarto Laban. And this is a case that I had picked out ahead of time when we were looking through the, the cases we were going to cover for this podcast series as one that I particularly wanted to make sure we did. This guy is of the characters that we're going to cover um, in this time period. And, you know, it, he, um, this guy is um, the least well known, I think, of any of them. This guy, very few people even in true crime have heard of this guy. I heard about him through a, uh, I think it was FBI agent Jim Clemente, and also writes for the show Criminal Minds, former FBI agent who I think had, 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 had uh, done some work on this case. James Mitchell DeBarta Laban is a almost unknown criminal but uh, to the public but to people who are in the FBI and as you'll hear the secret US Secret Service other intelligence agencies he's uh, their dossier after dossier on this guy he is a big deal and he's something of a supervillain even though people haven't heard of him he would in some ways he would fit in in you know 
in like a really X-rated Batman. He is a you know as a villain. He is a he is a a really nasty gnarly guy, and he very and very much a a um, omni criminal, a guy who was successful in across so many different d- uh, criminal domains. Uh, Roy Hazelwood, who's going to come up a lot in this podcast, who was the FBI. Um, specialist in, in, in kind of codifying uh, their definitions for sex crimes and working on sex crimes in the FBI in the 70s and 80s, a colleague of uh, Robert Ressler and John Douglas. Um, he said that he was, you know, a, a the definition of what is described as a true sexual sadist. He, he compared, for instance, Ted Bundy, who is sadistic in some ways. He said Ted Bundy was not a, a sexual sadist. We're going to get involved into sexual sadism. It's come up a lot in this podcast series. We're going to get involved specifically into the history of it and the definition of it in this podcast. It rela- as relates to this guy, James Mitchell, as they called him, or he was called Mike, his nickname, DeBarta Laban. And, uh, but he, because he, he, he didn't just exemplify it, he also wrote about it. This is a guy who wrote down everything like he was instructing an android or, or, or a robot he was writing it to himself in some ways he was i guess but he 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 would write down everything from his day-to-day instructions to his intermediate to long-term goals to his philosophy and he was known particularly in the fbi as a resource for understanding uh sexual sadism as a phenomenon because in part this guy beyond his crimes being an example of this he wrote something that has been referred to. It was a memo, essentially. But he wrote in his notes. He was someone who was not a, a professional in, psycho- in psychology or anything like that. He was a professional criminal. But he wrote. Um, he 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 was very very up on all the literature. He was a profi- uh, prolific reader. Very, and he was another guy that like we we saw with Al- Rodney Alcala. We're seeing with a handful of these guys who's super brilliant, really smart guy. And he he. Um, but he wrote a, a what was been referred to in the FBI as a what's called a manifesto of sadism. It's a sort of very grand sounding, and he had a kind of he self mythologized himself, I think, through this. And like a lot of sexual sadists, he documented his own life, kind of like a play, or you know, he was leaving a monument to his own villainy, his own uh, sadism. But he he defined it, and and we're get, we'll get into that you know as we go on because. Uh, he is known as an exemplar, but also as, in some ways, a manifesto writer of sadism as a way of being. James Mike Mitchell de Bartolaben is he 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 was someone who is is known like everyone else in this series primarily as a serial killer and 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 uh, predator. But uh, we don't. There is no knowledge of how many people he killed. He, I think, was charged with two murders. I think he's basically assumed to have killed three. There was a woman who was found dead in his apartment, I think, uh, restrained and stabbed to death. But he's suspected in over 50 murders, I think. The, the, he was a very prolific uh, criminal, an omni-criminal. And he was, someone who, um, he was someone who, because of how prolific he was, and he was operating from about roughly uh, 20 years. He was caught in 1983, but he was operating throughout from the early 60s. And he was born in 1940, I believe into a military family. I think his father was in the military, and he would go on to be in the military, like a lot of these guys. He's someone who uh, was was active for so long and was so prolific across the board that, you know, like like we've covered a lot of these guys, like Bundy and Alcala, you would, you would think that maybe the upper estimates when it comes to rapes, abductions, murders, is it's the upper estimate is probably closer to the truth, even though only we only know for certain one, likely three, that he killed. Um, however, 
he was he was wanted uh, nationally for reasons that have nothing to do with what he is primarily or should be certainly primarily known for, which is uh, kidnapping, rape, and murder. But he was an omni-criminal. He was wanted initially, and he used a lot of aliases. He did not use his birth name for very much at all. He largely used a lot of aliases. But he was um, wanted initially. The reason he ends up getting arrested, the reason they find out about everything else he did, is he was wanted initially for counterfeiting money. This is a guy who was amongst the most skilled and prolific counterfeiters and passers of money in American history. And the, the, uh, the Secret Service said that the, 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 um, the trying to find him, basically trying to find the, the traces of all his crimes, the evidence of all his crimes, chasing him, that was the biggest case of counterfeiting they investigated in, in over 100 years. One of the biggest cases they've ever investigated in the United States. And one of the things that's strange that comes up in the story is that for whatever reason, it's the job of the United States Secret Service and not the FBI or police department to investigate uh, people who counterfeit money. And this guy had several money printing operations. He had a very sophisticated operation. where He was printing his own money and then moving around the country, passing it through various uh, locations, buying huge amounts of stuff. In over, in I think, 38 states, you know, trip after trip after trip, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of, of stuff bought with his own uh, uh, printing machine made fake money. And I think the reason for, for that, you could say, well, you know, who is the Secret Service really protecting? And, I, you know, they protect the president, but they really protect the integrity of the United States money supply because that's what that's who really is. You know, you can have that response. But. The thing is, is that it made some sense probably initially when we, when the United States government in its early days was trying to establish a national currency, it could get really short-circuited, that process. The dollar could have gone nowhere if there had been a very small supply and, and reach of dollars and then all this had been all commandeered by one person who's, you know, creating their own fake uh, money printing sector. So they, 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 So this guy was wanted by the Secret Service. He's one of those wanted men in America, but by the Secret Service for uh, for passing huge amounts of fake money that he didn't created himself with his own printing press, his own money presses, and and so he uh, and and I think he did that under fake names. He used fake names pretty much everything, and but eventually he's arrested for this, and they keep trying to find his printing press, and it has all these dummy locations that had you know fakes. Because this is also a guy, you'll see from his writings and from his crimes, who really wanted to have control over the dynamics of his life and to use his life to exert control over, over other people, whether you're talking about the kidnapping and raping and murder of women. Or, the, or it, would he, I think he even was trying to contaminate the United States money supply. He passed an incredible amount of money. And when he's arrested for, for this, they think they're arresting a, a, you know, a counterfeiter. But actually... They find out as they go through his car that it looks just like Ted Bundy's car when he was arrested in Utah. It's it's a it's a kidnap and rape kit car full full car. They go back to his his residence and they see picture after picture of women bound and, and tortured and you know in terror. And he has audio recordings. He has video recordings and of all these women, some of which. Um, um, had had uh, may have been missing, some of which may have been assaulted. He, um, as you'll see with a lot of sadistic offenders, Debarda Laban, and it is a funny name, I think it's a Germanic ancestry or something like that, but he, he um, like a lot of these offenders, you'll see that while they do kill 
some of their victims, they will sometimes let them go. And you could say, and that's not mercy. That is part of the fantasy. That's, you know, they could kill them once or they could live forever in their memory. And there are criminals we'll get to later that uh, made this a part of their MO. Be, you know, sometimes using drugs um, to wipe their memory, but it's, it's stuck in the psyche. In this guy's case, he would sometimes um, kidnap and abuse or lure women, and then he would uh, hold them for a while and then let them go in the middle of nowhere or something like that. And, and they didn't know what to do other than just try to find some way back somewhere. And um, there is, so sometimes he wouldn't kill uh, these people. So, we, so DeBarda Laban is, uh, is, uh, is suspected in, you know, uh, dozens upon dozens of rapes, uh, maybe hundreds. But well, let's just get on to his uh, background. Oh, yeah, yes. One interesting thing you said there is that uh, DeBarda Laban could have been a villain in X-rated Batman. And I think uh, he would really have enjoyed that, actually. Oh, yeah, he would have loved it. He would have loved it. DeBarra Lane was born in March 1914 in Little Rock, Arkansas. The second of three children born to James Mitchell DeBarra Lane Sr. and Mary Lou Edwards DeBarra Lane. DeBarra Lane were a military family who moved frequently after the attack on Bell Harbor, James Bartlett Sr. took a commission as a lieutenant in the United States Army and was posted to Washington, D.C. for the duration of World War II. Mike's younger brother, Ralph, later became a U.S. Army paratrooper. Uh, Mary Louise um, married James Bartlett Laban in 1936. Um, Sr. was a serious type who wanted dinner ready and the children clean, but Mary didn't care for that. Linda was the first child, then Mike, the ch third child in 1942, 21 months later. Linda said her mother never felt loved by her stepmother. Uh, she was an excellent stenographer, but was not a great housekeeper or cook. Uh, Linda, Mike's older sister, said, my father had a demanding mother who put pressure on on us and uh, him. His inability to express his feelings. Uh, he was someone who was stern and really difficult to please. Mike was a child with strong feelings like his father. He played intensely. He was punished, uh, spanked and hit with sticks. Uh, they labeled him a bad boy and expected the worst from him. The debate Laban began an affair, but then he just, he considered a divorce. Uh, Mary Lou kept drinking, and uh, it, it, it turned out their mother was a drunk. Um, as Linda said, mother was often drunk. Uh, Linda said she felt neglected, and uh, and Linda, Mike's sister, would cook pancakes for Mike and Ralph, while their mother sometimes took them to bars and sometimes had affairs with the men that she met at the bar. Uh, Debata Laban was uh, senior, was very upset and embarrassed by Linda's affairs. Debata Laban moved his family to Frankfurt, West, West Germany, then moved to The Hague in Holland. Uh, two, the two brothers, Ralph and Mike, disliked each other, and uh, Linda had fights with them. Linda took for this bit. Oh, okay. I just press the button. Yeah, just press the mute button. Um, so Debart Laban said that 
he tried to please his parents, but uh, felt alone. He would stay alone in his room. Linda and Ralph seemed to come together as a group, and they they liked each other more than they liked Mike. While in school early on, Mike did excel academically until his sophomore year when he began to neglect his studies. Um, his younger brother actually had really excellent scores in school. In high school, Mike was threatened and beaten up by boys in school. According to his parents in 1956, Mike assaulted his mother. This was one of the first. Um, Mike started to become a really bad boy. Mike and a pal drove to Vermont, got a revolver and an also pistol. On the 21st at 4 p.m., police responded to a telephone complaint of gunfire. They arrested the 16-year-old Mike for carrying a concealed weapon. This was the first um, bit of his rap sheet. He also actually crashed a car into a police vehicle as well. Um, no one knows whether he did this on purpose. Uh, his, his parents eventually sent him to military. His military career was brief. Um, after basic, he was referred to it to the Air Force Base. Yeah, he was often court-martialed. Uh, in June, he b broke uh, the bed re bed restrictions. Um, before ver his various court-martials, uh, he was sent to visit an Air Force psychiatrist. The psychiatrist noted that he was a verbose young person who was highly egotistical, uh, had an antisocial nature dating back several years, uh, developed a maladjusted character. His character behaviors always make the pro prognosis for satisfactory military service hard. So DeBarton Levin moved back home with his parents. Uh, he did odd jobs but felt long-term gainful employment was beneath him. Uh, in August of that year, he married Linda, um, who was a teenager. They, they quickly divorced. DeBarton Levin tried to rob a gas station. He thought... He was going to. Uh, he he tried to rob his gas station with a pal. He thought the man behind the glass of the gas station was going to run, so he shot through the glass. Uh, the two were arrested later after a sale of, uh, after a series of auto thefts also in the community. Debartelabi was sentenced to five years probation in that case. At this time. Um, Mike was also wooing a 17-year-old high school girl. Yeah, um, I think what you can tell from listening to that is is that this guy has had what you know what's described as an antisocial personality, and that's pretty much every uh, killer that we're covering in this series. That's true of. Uh, can you hear me, Toby? Are you there? I can't. I've just muted my mic to check my notes. Oh, you. But you can hear. But am I coming through? You're coming through fantastically. Right? Okay. I just want to make sure because I, I I I adjusted something on my mic. But he he. So, um, all, pretty much everyone recover in this series is you know this could be accurately described as an antisocial personality. But Debardo Laban is one of those guys where that's kind of obvious. He doesn't have the honey, uh, tongued you know. Uh, nice guy persona he doesn't have the fun jocular persona we'll see with gacy and also that one thing that you do you see with, with with people like gacy who we'll cover next time um is is that he doesn't idealize 
authority. He is because um, he's not really a part of the group. He's not a part of the collective at all. He's he's a a a, a, a kind of a, a a criminal off on his own. And I think that as a child, he's in some ways off on his own because he doesn't make good impressions on anybody at any point. I mean, you could say that maybe on some of the young girls he, he dates and marries, but I think it's more that they're, they're just really young and they don't understand who he really is. Um, and maybe in those days you didn't have quite the, the um, you didn't have quite the uh, options that, 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 that women have now. Um, uh, but yeah, he's, but he is, an, um, he is very smart. Uh, but he, even if he didn't succeed in school, but he doesn't succeed in any in school or in, or in the military or anything. He is kind of set apart, uh, and probably by his nature, because he seems to be like this naturally. Um, but and he has a all the elements that you would associate with uh, psychopathy, but also with the things that go along with it, with a uh, narcissism. Um, he has, I think he was described in one of his uh, write-ups as having schizoid tendencies, which is also commonly, so you see a certain type of psychopath that's usually less social. Sch people who are schizoid um, have strange ideas and beliefs, but they also have, they also very, you know, have no desire really to be around other people. Um, and this guy doesn't really have any real relationships. He has no real alliances uh, so apart from. Just, uh, so yeah, as you mentioned, the, he didn't have, you know, relationships with these girls, and um, uh, um, he, he saw one with Faye Davis, who was six years younger than him. Uh, she would describe him as charming, well-groomed, and intelligent. Um, but obviously, Debar Laban soon got him, got her to agree to, you know, engage in these sex fantasies and taking all these pictures. Um, and uh, he also dated a young lady named Charlotte as well, and um, with, with Charlotte, uh, the they they got married. Um, the they they actually lived with the Bart Laban's parents. Their daughter was born on December twelfth, nineteen sixty. Uh, Charlotte and her, her in-laws um, very much hated uh, Debar Laban. Um, eventually, Charlotte and Mike separated, and also noted that uh, Debar Laban's brother Ralph Debar Laban committed suicide. Um, Mike has reflected on that by saying that they all had quite a difficult childhood because their their father was very demanding. Uh, Linda's also. Um, corroborated the the high demands of their of their father um and, and the reason that mike thinks that ralph committed suicide was because unlike him ralph you know stayed on the straight and narrow and never sort of raised any issue with the highly demanding um parenting that's um that they 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 lived under so i mean we don't know that yeah about, yeah we don't know about much about the family dynamics it's just how um mike has ref re reflected on it given that mike has you know is a pathological uh, criminal that's an interesting perspective well one thing you do get when you read about the family is yes the father uh was a very strict and demanding father uh i don't know if he was more so than other military fathers of the time but 
I suspect he probably was because one thing I've heard about him was that he would punish his children, both I think all I think all of them, by uh, kind of in the kind of a waterboarding style, by, by like sticking their heads in underwater until they couldn't take it any longer. He was sort of like they were in a boot, like they were in the Navy SEALs or something, even though they were just kids. But one of the things with with um, Mike DeBartolaben is is that when you read about him, he's he's uh, more so than some other sadistic offenders more sexual sadists, he's very, very clear because of his notes, because I think he's writing these notes to himself, about why he does what he does, at least in his mind, and who he really hates. And it's very clear he really hates women and he really hates his mother, and that even some of the rapes are stand-ins for his mother. He understands this, kind of like Kemper. But the thing is, is that uh, both, I think, the parents were, you know, there were problems with them. The dad was, as I said, strict military guy, uh, abusive punishments. But Mike really hates his mother. And, and I think she was someone who you know, she was, I think, an alcoholic. She was maybe derelict at times. But uh, he has he doesn't hate his father in the same way. Um, I don't think he idealizes his father in the way that Gacy does, as you'll see. But he, he really he really uh, hates women and, and, and thinks that they should be punished and um, so you might seem to think that, you know, in some ways he's emulating uh, his father as this sort of authority figure. But then again, he doesn't, unlike many psychopathic offenders, he doesn't um, idealize figures of power. He sees himself as set apart and, and as uh, sketching out his own story and acting out his own story in his, in his, through his crimes and, and, you know, and when it comes to the relationships with the girls, I think also you see that there's a level to which this is, you know, as I've mentioned in previous episodes, we talked about the, the how important the hunt is for predators. You see this with Rodney Alcala, how I think the hunting is even a bigger deal than the than than the actual rape and murder, because uh, there's something about setting the trap for these women he marries. You know, he's not someone who makes positive impressions on many people, but he does seem to be able to make enough of one on these women when he uh, gets together with them. And and what they do, what that really is, is it's like, you know, it's setting a trap. You know, it's 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 like you see in a nature show, you know, like a carnivorous plant will, will lure insects in, and then the insect lands and the plant snaps shut. And to some degree, these kind of guys, they're just looking for a a a uh, a mark that they can uh, that they can then experiment on with. They can you know with their fantasies. And with the control, the, 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 the you know, the, 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 the total control, which the um, sexual sadism is a particular elaborated version of, that they, 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 ta- they, they sucker these girls in, you know, to, to dating, to dating them and marrying them. And then the moment, the, the moment it's time, the trap is snapped. And, um, and, and, and I think that he probably, uh, when he, he, you know, these young girls he, he was with, he he makes an initial impression on them, and then eventually they get stuck into this stuff, and he and he uh, experiments with a lot of these fantasies with his wives, and then later with girl with women he kid, kidnaps. But it, it it is that it is it is kind of this setting a trap and then waiting for it and then springing it uh, when when they can do it. It's the same kind of game he plays with society, with the counterfeiting, with the fraud, uh, you know, real estate fraud, with uh, bank robbery and setting fires and doing all manner of these crimes, you're, you're playing this elaborate game of control and domination. 
so yeah, Debartlevin goes to prison in 1960. Uh, he comes back. Debartlevin moves back in with his parents. Uh, he does odd jobs, but he feels like uh, long-term gainful employment is beneath him. Uh, he had a movie projector so he could screen pornographic movies in his room. Uh, pain and sickness and drug dependency withered his bodies. His gait, once a swagger, was slow to shuffle. He started pho- photographing nude models. His, and he and at this time, he also started to attack his mother. It was uh, at night where he went at her with a razor. Uh, for this, he was sent to a hospital and given another psychological assessment. It was stated that his, the patient was not mentally ill and instead was antisocial and a psychopath. Uh, Gerald noted that the psychiatrist might be the most appropriate setting. Four months later, he married again an, a 19-year-old cosmetology student. Uh, his, his parents did not press charges for the um, assault on, on, on his mother at this time. This is something you see, uh, you know, that you don't see that often. You don't see that many of these guys attacking their parents like this. Uh, you know, as I, as I said, I mentioned when we get to Gacy, he never once attacks his, his, even his horribly abusive father just occasionally. Once, I think he defends himself, but that's about it. This guy, um, is uh, his parents were really scared of him. And his dad, this is, his dad was a military guy. You know, this, this is not something you see very often. We see someone within the family, the kids, uh, you know, threatening, genuinely threatening their parents like this. And I think it's because this guy is dangerous and, and, and criminally minded and, and psychopathic, probably from the jump. I think he, you know, um, this, the, the, uh, when we talk about psychopath, psychopathy and sexual sadism, this, we're going to come back to some of these sources we've gone over, like uh, psychopathy, sexualis, and stuff in previous episodes. But I think you could also compare him in some ways to Peter Curtin, the super criminal from Germany in the 1930s, in, in that, you know, you don't know, there's some level of stuff in, in his life, but it's mostly you just think this is who he is. And and he attacking his mother like that, that, that is not common. Uh, you don't see that with any many of these guys who attack their mother or their father. Because, um, you know, they that's the the only parents they'll have. So, uh, you, and you, you, they normally, you, you normally see at least a cover of, um, of normalcy with these type of characters, sometimes more than that. But um, this guy attacks his mother, and he never conceals his just seething hatred of women, and uh, and how uh, there's a direct relation between his uh, threatening his mother and his hatred of his mother, using these these women later as surrogates for that hatred and for that sense of being, I guess, humiliated by his mother. But this is also a guy who does not have a healthy ego, even though he's he's a, he's a narcissist. But you could say that that is a symptom of someone who ha- does not have it in balance. He threatens his mother, and he threatens both his parents, and they're scared of him. And that doesn't happen very much with these guys. Most of these guys, they have some level of cubing, you know, like BTK talked about, where they have their private and public life, the family, and then the other stuff they do. But this guy, I think, is the enemy of, of all, of everyone, who isn't himself, including his parents. And he really hates his mother. Uh, yeah, so uh, by 1964... He's married Wanda Faye Davis, um, who stated that she found him actually well-groomed, charming, and intelligent. I think profilers have uh, stated that he looked for young women who were 
passive and innocent so that he could have some control over them. It's been stated that he disclosed his uh, sexual fantasies and openly discussed his, his urges to torture and kill women to Davis. Davis later told the Secret Service uh, his greatest thing that he could have ever thought about was to abduct a woman, torture her, have various sex activities go on, strangle her and watch her die or blow her brains out with a gun. Then he would hide so that if she was ever found, there would be no evidence of who had done it and it would be the perfect crime. Yeah, he's, he, you know, I, once again, this is another way in which he's sketching out his life in plans and documenting it and where it's all a big game of uh, conquest and domination and control and proving that he is the god of, of, of his universe. And all this stuff, I think, is, is, is kind of writing an alternate history for himself or writing the, total, the, the sort of definitive history because he's not a part of anything else. He's not a part of his family. He's not a part of the human race. He's not a part of the, this country. He's uh, documenting his life kind of like it's, he's documenting uh, um, a, um, this is a psychodrama. It's a conquest. It, it's, it, it, it's something that's set apart. So, he, you know, he had attended two different universities in Texas in summer of 1961, uh, despite lacking a high school diploma, but he was in... Probation was revoked and uh, he went to prison in 61 and didn't really pick back up his education. Interestingly about Debart Laban's background is that Debart Laban's father had, a, I think, a master's degree in engineering. So this was not someone, and his, his mother was a stenographer, so this is not someone who didn't have, um, you know, that the kind of opportunity in life. He seemed to have um, quite a solid background for for something like something, you know, uh, substantial. That's um, he, he was just a terribly antisocial person who could just never function um, in, in normal society. Uh, at all. So by 1966, uh, he was arrested for kidnapping and sodomizing a young girl. This was Debart Laban's first known sex offense. But after the jury discovered the victim had got into the car with the two men voluntarily, um, the other man being uh, Davis, his girlfriend, um, the charges were ultimately withdrawn. Two times within a short period of time, Davis fell pregnant with Debar Levin's child. The first pregnancy ended in miscarriage after Debar Levin shoved her down a flight of stairs. Uh, they were already divorced when he, she gave birth to his daughter, Lindsay. Yeah, he has. So he has um, the 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 uh, a little bit of the trappings of what you might say. You know, he has he he ends up having a daughter. He has some things that are that are happening, but it's also interesting that he doesn't uh, he doesn't. Um, he doesn't really ever have any uh, any one of the one of the things that tends to be distinguishing a psychopathic offender is that they have uh, he has criminal versatility, but they have other criminal connections. He doesn't like getting involved in anyone and with anyone really, unless it's under his control. And um, and he doesn't have associates. He doesn't have accomplices or or lackeys like some of these guys do. Um, but he is, you know, this is a, this is sort of he has a long pattern of of uh, demonstrated antisociality, while but alongside these these relationships with women and he and 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 being becoming the father of a daughter, 
and who I think he would later meet when she visited him in jail. Yeah. So yeah, moving on to the first crime, which was Edna Terry uh, McDonald. Okay. So oh, the the, re- the realtor, which was a common thing, he would target realtors. Yeah. So the fifty-two-year-old realtor, uh, Edna Terry McDonald. So in early April nineteen seventy-one. A man identified as various things began arriving at real estate offices at Barrington. Could you mute your mic for me? Uh, the suspect visited properties in various places. The only one he seriously followed on was Edna McDonald, uh, married to businessman John J. Jack McDonald. Uh, he came. Uh, uh, he stated that he was, uh, Mike the Bottle Laban came there with an alias and he stated that he was from New New, New Jersey, um, referred to him as, himself as Morgan, uh, had a wife and family and wanted a new uh, house and he didn't want a sort of older colonial style prop- property, he wanted a new uh, house. Um, Terry McDonald climbed into her 1970 Pontiac. Um, the night man said that McDonald waited an hour for Morgan. Terry McDonald phoned her daughter to say that Mr. Morgan was not coming. Uh, she said later on on the phone that she had gone to the side uh, entrance of the hotel where... Morgan had told her to meet him and she had found him there as she was going to leave. As she actually went uh, to back to her house and uh, met her daughter and uh, picked up um, her flashlight uh, for the house that she was going to see with um, Mr. Morgan, uh, told, told her daughter that she was going to be back soon. By midnight, her, her daughter had called the police. The official search for Terry McDonald started. Hope Davis um, Realty showed the po- police a list of properties that she was supposed to see. Officer Kasule contacted the, the builder who gave the keys uh, to a policeman who gave the keys to Kasule. Kasule went there with a a chaplain he was uh, around who was helping him to search. They went into the house. They went up uh, into the house. Uh, Kasule went to the top. The chaplain went down. Uh, Kasule heard the chaplain scream. Um, Kasule went down. They found a body, uh, the murdered Terry McDonald, a length of cord looped over a pipe attached to her. I, I think it said, until a comparable crime was connected to uh, DeBarta Laban years later, uh, the police had no leads on this case. You know, by that point, I guess the victimology had become uh, entrenched. So DeBarta Laban is, is well on, you know, in, in this pattern of, uh, in, the, into the, in the 70s. Of of the conducting these assaults, and uh, the, he he varied up his mo. Um, in, sometimes you know, particularly when it comes to 
luring and targeting. He would he would impersonate police uh, police officers like a lot of the other guys did. He had police equipment, but he all he did like in the case of Edna Terry McDonald, he um he would he would go to a lot of places and and uh, and case out some of the women who worked there. You know he would t- t- uh, you know to try to usually his more minor crimes, but he would also target women who were uh, realtors at their place of business, you know, or, or, or when he was trying to, what he was trying to do was to buy a property off of them because he figured out that he could, he, they, they, they would be by themselves and he could, and, and he could target them. He could maybe lure them somewhere at that point. And, um, and he had very, he had a whole bunch of disguises and, uh, and, and, and as I said, a whole bunch of, um, aliases and, uh, but, uh, but he, uh, it, it, regardless of how he whether he would approach as a would-be buyer from realtor uh, or he would approach as a policeman he pulled over one woman uh, on the highway I think you know he, he you know what would well as disguise a policeman he, he used a lot of different ruses and a lot of different uh, mos to get uh, women that he was targeting uh, for uh, for sexual assault uh, and sometimes worse uh, to, to to get along. So the Terry McDonald's case was 1971. Uh, so by 1978, um, you have Lucy Alexander, a 19-year-old nursing student. Now, uh, this was May 5th, 1978, Labor Day weekend. Um, Lucy and her... her no, this was um, September the 3rd. The, the, no, this was September the 3rd. Labor Day weekend. Uh, Lucy and her boyfriend uh, drove to Ocean City where they partied at a bar, but they fell into an argument and Lucy was uh, going off on her own. Alexander said the stranger asked if she wanted to come into the camp, to which she said no. How old are you? He asked. 19. You look younger than 19. He showed a badge, said he was FBI, and said she was under arrest for hitchhiking. Only after he had drove into the countryside did he stop the charade, guided her into an empty, an, an empty house, said he was going to negotiate a ransom with her parents. And then he went, went out of the room and came back. He sexually abused her, gave her a drink of water, uh, then hurried her in, into his car, told her if anything went wrong, he would shoot the the police officer and then her. He did eventually release her uh, in Delaware. Yeah, one of the things I think it's, that's different about him also is, is that he he sometimes just seems to come out of nowhere, uh, whether, whether just as a policeman, you know, the FBI guy in this case, or whether he's... he's um, you know, uh, masquerading is trying to buy uh, something from a realtor. He, you know, a lot of these guys, they have these much more uh, specific and elaborate schemes to, to uh, apparently so, to, to, uh, to, to target these people. Like, you know, Harvey Glattman, the first episode, it's always, you know, going to, to meet, you know, meet these girls through dating ads or through, uh, or, or, or to get, to have them be a photographer, you know. But he seems to sort of, you know, come out of nowhere into these women's lives, kind of like he just—he's like he just materializes. Yeah, and yeah. and uh, no, just to know he didn't. 
he didn't just uh, kill her. He just he met. He, you know, he he obviously sodomized her. He made her perform oral sex on him, and then he let her go, which is different from uh, the other of other people. But also, like you're like you're saying, like he just comes. He forces himself into their world without without like a real hook, you know. Um, Harvey Glattman is a photographer. Ted Bundy is a cool, charismatic guy who kind of sails through the heuristics of young uh, women. Uh, but but uh, Mike, Mike DeBart Laban, even with the police ruse, he's just exerting a kind of force that other serial killers don't seem to be doing in, their, in, the, in the way that they, you know, leading their victims into the trap. Yeah, I think it's partly because he doesn't really have a place in the world. Every every one of these is is kind of just it's it's a criminal operation, and and all of course all these attacks from any of these guys is technically a criminal operation, but it's not necessarily approached that way. In the way it's in the way it's done, this is he's approaching this like he's kind of approaching a bank to rob or or a or a place that he can pass off his uh, his um, you know fake bills. Everything is is just it's a it is the the target of a criminal operation, and I think maybe one of the reasons he doesn't kill some of these women is because you know um, he doesn't uh, want to get booked for murder, but maybe also um, because you know he has you know it, it, both. This is also true of a lot of predators. A lot of predators like a crocodile will not attack a person sometimes when they easily can kill them because they're cautious there's an element to this where you know you have a you have a thing you particularly do and you don't do more than that until you are confident that you can or until you're driven to and um his his attacks are primarily about the assault and the rape and the things that he particularly needs to happen during that the murder is i think something that just ha- I don't think that that is part of his fantasy so and he and he doesn't so he doesn't commit it if unless he needs to so uh, Elizabeth Mason was the next victim uh, the 31 year old realtor agreed to show a man numerous residences in Fayetteville North Carolina so um, so she spotted the stranger wearing aviator glasses. He introduced himself as Al, said he was a federal employee about uh, transfer down from Virginia. Yeah, he never uses, just a, as I said, I think I said before, he never uses uh, Mike DeBartolabin. He always uses uh, pseudonyms. He's having his actual persona remain in the dark. He's always using this as part of his criminal operation. No one actually knows who he is. Mason was an amateur actress, uh, five foot five, blue eyed. Mason recalls how uncomfortable she felt in his presence. Al indicated he was willing to spend $100,000 or more for a house, uh, especially in the 1970s, that's a lot. He picked up his car, drove to Highland Avenue. Without thinking, contrary to practice, she radioed her home office. As the tour continued, Al spotted the empty house. Uh, and Brickhouse Drive. He asked Mason several questions about the place which the realtor, uh, but she couldn't find. Once inside, Al walked into the kitchen to the living room. 
she tries to escape him so perhaps uh she she in once in the house she tried to escape him hoping that he'd go away at that time she stated i thought if anything like that happens to me that's what i'm gonna do and that's what i did then he tried to shoot uh her and uh and and but the but the gun didn't go off wait no let me let me start let me start that section again she she tried to escape him uh, so perhaps he would go away then he pulls out a gun and then she thought what am i going to do um then he tries to shoot her but the gun didn't go off so she attacked him she rushed at him she stated, I just attacked him, cr crawling at him and hitting. Uh, he took the gun and started immediately hitting her on the head. He tried to shoot her again, but he it didn't go off. So uh, she attacked him again. Uh, and then because he's being melee by her, he stated that he just wanted her purse. She didn't believe this, but she said, okay, okay, go into the, the car. She knew she just had a little bit of, of change in the, the purse, but she said, no, I also keep my checkbook in there. So she, he went into the car and then he, 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 he made his escape. Um, a a she survived. Um, she, she went back to the realtor. She, she told them about her, her ordeal. Uh, a 10,000 reward was put out by other local realtors, uh, people, you know, who had p potentially had seen him. Uh, there was a, a, a local guy who said that he actually had assisted Mike to get into Mason's car. He saw Mike uh, next to the, the car bloody. Um, he said that he had lost his key and he needed help to get into the car and the man had assisted him uh, into getting into the car. Mason has uh, later stated that she was upset that no one came with that, you know, story of actually assisting Mike until the 10,000 reward was, was, was put out, but she survived uh, the ordeal. One of the, uh, the, the things that was particularly noted about her was that she had read about other women who had been attacked, or, you know, by uh, potential rapists, and she had she and I think and partly informed by that, maybe just by her instincts. Her instinct was just to fight back against this guy, and it it, it is you know as um, you know it says it is it mentioned I think you mentioned that that she uh, she was uncomfortable around Debartelaben, and I and one of the things about it is he does not have that that kind of um, the mask of the a really well a mask of sanity that stays on his face perfectly well. He he has, he he's not very good in these sort of situations. He's not smooth, like Bundy. He he is um, or Alcala. He he uh, he's very uncomfortable in these type of situations. I think because he's aware of the risk. He's aware of what he's there to do, but he doesn't have he 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 come. You know, she sensed that he that he was um, agitated. The entire time when he was trying to uh, set up that that uh, real estate deal, I think she also sensed that he was uh, not approaching it in in a in because she was appro he was approaching it kind of in a way that was suspicious from the perspective of a buyer, and um, and so she fights back against him when he 
when he when, when you know you know I think even before he attacks her, she's she she's trying to uh, trying to drive him away because he's making her so uncomfortable, and then he, you know he the the gun doesn't go off, so he hits her over and over again with the gun, but he's uh, um you know the handgun, but uh, she um had the instinct to fight back, and the instinct also to say that he that this wasn't a normal business deal. This was there was something going on, uh, either on the basis of her experience in real estate or on the basis of just how agitated he was. He had the disguise on and everything, but he wasn't pulling it off. Another of his victims, Laurie Jensen, Ocean City, Maryland, in July of 1979. Laurie Jensen was returning home at night after working at a convenience shop when a car with a flashing light drew up next to her. She was requested to get in the car when the driver produces identification. She was questioned about a robbery by the driver who was dressed as a police officer. She was handcuffed when he was when he unexpectedly seized her arm. She was taken to a house two hours away while wearing uh, a blindfold. Yeah, he stated, I want to ask you a few questions. Uh, there's a store that's been broken in. Uh, by a man, uh, I, I think he is your accomplice. She said her boss could verify where she had gone. Uh, he, he took her in the car to verify, then started his process, went along secondary rows, then they were deep into the countryside. He stopped as before. At this time, the victim claims that she realized the suspect was not a police officer. She opened the door, got both feet on the ground, screamed as she tried to get away. He said, I'll kill you taped her face behind her neck then ta taped above her eyes it didn't uh, didn't anyone ever tell you what to do in in case something like this happened to you the way you're taped up there's no way of escaping this the suspect pushed her on the floor the sus he stated he had a gun and he's he was going about is going to use it once he arrived at, at the destination he freed her ankle then hustled her into the door before disrobing her he offered a sip of his root beer he forced her to give him a blowjob he struggled to achieve orgasm then sodomized her and made her call him daddy as he did through as she did through her sobs uh while she was blindfolded uh, he he struggled to maintain con uh, concentration because he was looking at the sex act from a number of different mirrors that he had set up in the room. Uh, then he released her, uh, moved the tape, and then uh, took her, drove her a few blocks um, away from her home. He took pictures of her while uh, while they were still there and recorded her being tortured, forcing her to tell him how... Um, she was enjoying it. After three days, he drove her back and released her alive. Yeah, that's a. Uh, I think in some ways that's a a a prototype, or or in this a horrible way, an apex example of 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 Debarta Laban's uh, uh, victimology in a mode because he 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 um, he he's basically he's he's got someone uh, fully under his control. Um, in 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 a location of his choice for as long as he wants, and and not necessarily longer than that. He doesn't have to, 
you know, murder is not key to this. But what it also is, I think, particularly important here is that I mentioned, and we'll get into in more detail what the real psychopathology of what sexual sadism is, but specifically beyond its the, the psychological functions of all these things, he really has a difficult time uh, and, and, and very specific needs when it comes to uh, getting and maintaining an erection and um, and very particular things that he needs. You know, the, the, the mirrors is kind of like the way uh, he and others will use uh, video footage or audio recordings. It's not just to relive it. It's, it, it's to make it happen right the first time. And, uh, you know, so he, and, and, and well, during this time, he's, he's trying to, you know, rape them. You know, he's, he's, uh, in, he uses um, dildos, other foreign objects, you know. And, um, but he has to have everything on particular angles, like the, you mentioned this. You know, he, ha- he has a difficult time with, it, with, with, you know, with, with some sort of level of erectile dysfunction. And he has a particular thing about uh, that he, he will ask some of his victims to call him daddy during the assaults. And you, you, you might think that this is some ways like some sort of like when he, when he talks about this being a, um, his crimes being in some ways he's aware of it being a, a, a uh, displaced surrogates for his hatred of his mother, that he's kind of in a sense becoming his father and this, you know, or, be, or taking on the father role, you know, but I don't know. It, it could also simply be that you know, people use daddy a lot in sexual fantasies, but this isn't obviously uh, a, a, a consensual sex act. This is rape. But the thing about it is, is, is that in, in, is that he has, he, he has very particular needs when it comes to these, to get off sexually. And, and, and he'll, he'll keep a lot of victims for a long time too, but you know, to keep making this, doing the whole thing over again. He also will sometimes dress up uh, I think I think Laurie Jensen uh, uh, said that that he that he didn't that he was nude uh, during the assaults, but with some of these victims, he's he um, he'll dress up as he'll he'll dress up in drag when he's conducting the assaults too. So he he has some particular fantasy he's playing out that has very specific requirements to allow him to get off and to maintain erections, um, even though it has been noted by in the case of some of these assaults that. He had no difficulty maintaining um, an energy level and maintaining uh, stamina because sexual sadists they get this this incredible uh, charge and um, energy from the the uh, everything they do, but it doesn't necessarily correspond to uh, to uh, sexual performance, you know, to erection, to getting an erection and keeping it. Um, so, uh, and, and in this case. Uh, Lori Jensen, who's 20 years old, I think, in 1979, she, um, she, she, she survives, but she is held for several days and, 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 and raped and assaulted, and, 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 and she is one of the many women when they uh, find his house where her picture is, is there are pictures of her in his house, in his possession, yeah, and so, recordings. So with the Maria Santini case, okay, so. Um... Yeah, just to refer back to the uh, what you just stated about uh, sometimes him dressing in drag in the Miss Marina Santini uh, case, he he actually goes to a store where um, a clerk had uh, rejected uh, some of the beginning of his overtures really quickly, uh, but doesn't meet her and meets Maria Santini, and when he takes Maria Santini to, back to his lair. 
he does dress as a transvestite and tells um maria that he is a trans uh he is a transvestite so he does have that as part of his um of you know of over of um different kinds of uh sex acts um the next the the next victim in our timeline is Diane Overton. So on the evening of November the first, nineteen eighty, twenty-five-year-old Diane Overton brushed her hair and put on high heels, and headed to her parents' house to put on a burgundy terry cloth dress. She went into a nightclub. Uh, she was driving back opposite a darkened station. Then an officer pulled up towards her behind the two cars deep staircase uh, she got a good look at him as he approached her car illuminated by headlights he walked and says i'd like to see your driver's license and registration he was back there a good five minutes and then said i'd like to see you get out of your car then the thought came to her um not to argue she put out her engine but then he handcuffed her uh, she stated what are you doing mike said this car is wanted overton kept kicking as he shoved her into the door and she's kicking at him trying to stop from getting into the car he rammed her into the car rammed his car into the um reverse then it slapped again this is it she thought to herself this is it i'm not going to get out of this then she stated that she came to her senses and she stated i can't let this happen you've got to do something she took arms and just somehow managed to get her hand on the handle mike tried to restart the car he gunned it into reverse the door got free of the wall and then he hit the gas he was coming and she got out of the car and she said that the car was coming right at her as he got done on moments later she looked across uh down Rue 180 then overton looked to her left if i could reach the the chairs and if i could reach the stairs i might be able to hide I froze, I couldn't move, I couldn't do anything, and then I heard the tires and thought he was coming back. The truth is, he was. He was looking straight at her, moving with the car, but he couldn't see where uh, she was hiding. I peeked over the side and saw him drive away. She crawled up the wooden stairs to the door of a family she knew. There, a teenage boy answered the door. Uh, she fell into his arms. Uh, the teenage boy screamed, uh, it's 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 Diane Overton. So Diane Overton managed to get away. As I, as I mentioned, uh, he, uh, as far as the victims that we know that he's connected to, most of them do get away after you know uh, um, after the assault. Um, but those are the ones we know he was connected to, right? So. Yes, those are the ones we. There's a whole lot that he's associated with. But we don't know for sure. And one of the th reasons I think this case is not as well known among the general public, even though there's many salacious elements to it, we don't know how many he killed. We don't know how many he raped. We don't know who, or, or you know, and and he and he, you know whether in his counterfeiting and his pa money passing operation, or whether in the rapes, whether in any of these assaults, he travels around a lot, and and so it's very hard to make connections between these. One of the other things about this is it's is is it's very difficult to connect his crimes to each other. You know, there's not the obvious thing where the you know the killer has left a fish at the. Well, actually, Ridgeway did that, but it was a fake. Um, but you know, the the, the uh, there's not the sort of the obvious thing that connects all these crimes. There's just 
a whole lot of crimes that he eventually gets connected to some of them. But in these in, in these cases, these are women who survived, um, and they can verify it later um, because they can tell stories about it. They can they can uh, testify at court. Um, but of course, he uses lots of disguises. I mean, maybe not enough when you've been raped by him, but you know, and and held uh, prisoner. But uh, he he is these crimes are not connected at the time necessarily. There there are sort of a spattering of crimes and and kind of just all over the place. Uh, but later they would be connected. But the, but this is the, the when you look up this guy, you'll see a handful of these names that we're talking about that are connected to him. But there's a whole lot of others that aren't even mentioned that he's suspected of. He is he may be one of the most prolific violent criminals in American history, but we don't know. But he's suspected of a lot. So and, so at but, this time uh, so at this time no likely suspect to the Elizabeth Mason assault had really manifested itself. Authorities were thinking uh, so at this time no likely suspects to the Elizabeth Mason assault um, had turned up. Authorities were thinking that the the Alexander and Jensen assaults were related. Um, female FBI agents actually volunteered at night to attract the rapist's attention wearing shorts. Uh, they were a little older than the victims, though, and uh, only managed to get a couple cars to uh, be held over. Um, so, you know, at this time, uh, FBI was turning to the Bureau's Behavioral Science Unit, the BSU. Unlike traditional detectives, the BSU focused on profiles, John Douglas was assigned to the case and said uh, subjects were raised by uh, and stated that uh, subjects like this were raised by a dominating mother, impulsive father. Um, he, see, he seemed to theorize that the, the child would become a criminal in adolescence and probably went to the army. Uh, interviews with sp former spouses would probably... Um, uh, ha and the person would probably have like uh, several stressful uh, marriages... Uh, just to move on uh, a bit further, the next major killing, uh, I mean, the next major victim, I probably should remove killing from the thing just to create suspense, but the next major victim was um, a lady named Jean McFulson. So uh, she was called, she was a prominent realtor. Another realtor, it's worth noting. Yeah. So, uh, Jean McFulson was a prominent realtor from Bowser City, Louisiana. Um, McFulson was at her office uh, when Doctor was calling uh, Agent McFulson, who was 40 years old and recently separated from her husband. She left the meeting and took the call briefly with him. Dr. Zach was looking for a new house and apparently money was no object. Jean was next seen pulling into the parking lot at Greenacre's place. Bernadette Bilson also saw the client with Jean McFall. McFall chose five houses to show her customer this morning and then drove off with the keys. Hoard and another real agent found her car and didn't understand because she was a conscientious lady. The daughter reinforced that McFall being out for so long was odd for her mother. Hood looked for the realtor in each house. She expected to visit and found nothing. On Wednesday morning after interviewing Karen Batten, then they came to the third house. Payne noticed the wards of insulation. We sure better check in this attic. He found the switch in there and said, 
Oh, shit. She's here. Six feet away was Jean McFall. Her shoeless feet just touched the floor, latched to the ligature brace, drenched in blood from two deep puncture wounds to her heart. The victim's photo had been in the Normanad, and she had passed out leaf, leaf, leaflets about her service in a local mall. Agent Watson st- started to theorize about it. Callers started writing in with theories about the killer of Jean McFall. It was Mrs. Dumas who noticed the white male riding a gold gold model Toyota. Uh, He was wearing good quality leather, small hands, pasty skin. He introduced himself as Mr. Zack and said he was interested in renting a room for his family. She said he had been laid off by the government after the, the inquiry. Dumas told Carol Dr. Zack left. Scott Henderson stated that uh, given the, the situation, if they just got hold of the suspect, they might actually have enough to convict them. But a person found out that he got a car through Monroe to get to the Shriveport Hotel. We, we found the car and uh, they stated that they, they went through it. Uh, they found the, the lipstick of Jean McFall in the front seat. They asked her friend to verify this. Which which the, her friend did. They found the the hotel that he had stayed at. Payne had also issued a nationwide appeal for all unsolved realtor homicides. The detective got seventy five back. They went to Michigan to find out more about another uh, killing. Yeah, well, this is one thing also that one of the ways in which they're able to get uh, Debarta Laban for this case, uh, you know, and 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 is that he had a list of aliases in his private diary entries. And one of the ways in which they, they got him for all these things is that they have, he, he kept, you know, meticulous, copious records um, of, of all this stuff. So he, uh, so he, he was seen, uh, you know, uh, in the Dr. Zach uh, disguise, there was a, a sketch that, that closely resembled uh, other depictions of him or other sightings of him. But then in, they find the, uh, the Dr. Zach in his notes. So they know, for 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 surety, they know that um he uh, that that was that was him and that was an a, a, a an operation, and and I think this is the one where he killed someone that is, that is most clearly what happened, and um, but you know they 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 have proof, not just from the the uh, the 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 evidence that the, you know the crime or the him being seen, but in in his private diaries they have. The Doctor Zach is one of the things that, in his diaries, and they were, as I said, they weren't just, uh, you know, recordings. They were, they were plans. They were, they, they were, they were kind of, they, they were all, basically like, like you would, you would find the schematics to a bank robbery or something. Uh, but he had these for, for his, uh, planned assaults and, in this case, a murder. Yeah. So, um, like he has a lot of aliases. So, yeah, like beginning in 1979, uh, he has a lot of aliases. Beginning in 1979, he was uh, Frank A. Turner. Um, He, you know, reinvented himself frequently. On March 30th in 1980, he registered a Best Western Motel as Alan Kirk. Um, Other times he was James R. Johns. Uh, two months later, Michael Shelton in July 1981. He was a, a red roof as Roy Radke of Austin. Um, and so, and and actually, he, in order to um, 
support his criminal enterprises, he was a counterfeiter. So, you know, he would um, he would try to manufacture uh, U.S. dollars. And, and he wasn't, um, say, one of the greatest counterfeiters in the in the country. Apparently, there's a story of uh, one of the top counterfeiters who had never been caught uh, until he was in his 70s. And the only reason uh, he was caught was because uh, a young kid that he had got to help him move some stuff found a bunch of bills in his possession and hit him over the head and then ran away. But And then the police caught up to that young kid. But that, that famous counterfeiter said that actually those bills weren't ready for, for uh, distribution. But, but yeah... Um, Mike DeBartolabin was a top quality forger. And most of his uh, forgeries did pass. And so he went around malls all over the country and trying to pass uh, his bills. And, and, and what he would do is he, he would try to buy something that was cheap, like for a dollar, sticks of gum or Newsweek magazine, so that he would get all the change back. And then he would use that change as his, uh, his, his sort of walking money. And he did, he did this uh, all over the country. And then the Secret Service uh, started to, to determine a pattern um, often his bills, because uh, I think that the the U.S. service has red and blue marks on the bills, and in in order to try to match that, he would have like red and blue lines on his bills, and so they often identified his bills as having those specific differences on the red and blue lines, and then they 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 spotted that there was a pattern going through the whole of the United uh, States, especially on the East Coast, but. But this wasn't like a tremendous forging operation that he had. It's just that he kept deceiving the you know custom customers and um, clerks and obviously the secret service themselves. So they they took it upon themselves as a you know because they they saw it as as a real affront to their to their uh, authority. Yeah, he, he I, I mean it's it, it was he had a kind of a it was a skillful operation. He had I think ten steps. I heard that you know in 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 the process of creating these bills and then making them a certain look a certain way. I mean, it was, it was successful, but it was not, it was, it wasn't a threat to the United States. Uh, the integrity of the U S money supply, it wasn't a threat to, um, the security of the country really. Although I think that if it was, he would have found it, you know, he would have, he would have, uh, liked that because, um, when he was first in jail, when he was first in jail, he wrote during, during his imprisonment, I feel I've been unjustly tormented, degraded, and shit upon by society, specifically the American justice system, which is rotten to the core. In order to regain an adequate self-image, I feel compelled to somehow restore my self-respect. If I were to shit upon society for an adequate monetary gain, commensurate with the pain I have suffered and not get caught, it would accomplish my objective. So I think some of this was also his attempt to gain get revenge against the entire system. But he also... It also was so he didn't want to be on the books. He, he, he wanted to be a, sort of off the radar, and he didn't want to work. He had an impossible time dealing with people. And he also um, he also didn't, you know, he also thought, was confident in his ability to, as a counterfeiter, and it did work in terms of supporting his operation. He had a lot of different things when that are typical of people who are uh, counterfeiters, like small stuff that he, he kept after he bought, bought it, probably almost like a trophy. Um but one thing is, if you look up James M. DeBartolabin, uh, if you Google him, 
you'll find that he has this nickname, the Mall Passer. It's on its face not one of the not one of the better nicknames, but I think it is kind of telling because it's telling of someone who uh, was something other than what he appeared to be, because he actually was a prolific rapist and possibly murderer. Uh, it certainly killed at least a few, but he he. Uh, he was no. He was initially, as we can tell by the mall passer nickname, he was he was sought by the Secret Service over this uh, over this um, counterfeiting operation, and so in many ways it's a fitting nickname for for someone who wasn't what he actually uh, what people thought he was. He was something else, but it isn't it isn't the best nickname. It's certainly it's it, you know, it's a bit like how Richard Ramirez goes from being the screen door intruder to the night stalker. That's a much better one. But <laughs> we'll get the, the, all those different nicknames. So every now and then you go, you know, the walk-in killer, the screen door intruder, and then eventually the Night Stalker, the best nickname in the history of crime. But, um, you know, you know I feel <laughs> like this is with kind of a, like an insignificant job trying to make their job seem more exciting because they, they intuit that because he's passing bills all over the country, he must be doing something else that's more nefarious, but they just... They had nothing to go on for that. They just thought, oh, like he must be a criminal mastermind because he's passing bills and for twenty dollars in several different states. But you know, it's like, and but they call them the mall passer. Yeah, I mean, that that must have gotten. I think what that was was that there, there must have been some level of media coverage of this guy doing that. But until he was arrested, initially sought for that, they had no idea that this guy was also a a, a sadistic murderer and rapist. Um, but they, they, they did not all, they, until they, they arrested him for this other stuff, they actually were able to prove that easier than the whole thing with the, the, the passing the bills thing. But, um, for, for, for this whole thing where he's going to like 38 different States passing bill after bill after bill, you know, of, the, of his print of his, of his own printed uh, money from his own printing operation. But obviously that was to finance in part to finance his, his campaigns of kidnapping and rape. And 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 and, uh, and in some cases murder, but he he is uh, he also I think he engaged in bank robbery. I think he did some arson. I think he did some real estate fraud. He is he is a kind of a omni criminal. But he but that was not known until they were he was he he was arrested. And it was, of course in the interest of the FBI and all these other people in some ways to to uh, to talk him up like that because they don't want to be clowned. By someone who you know they want to give some explanation why this how this happened, but but you know it was as we've discussed in a lot of other in a lot of other shows in the '60s and '70s and '80s, you have a lot of these guys just going around places, and they happen to pull over someone who actually was a much worse criminal than he appeared to be, and you wonder how many other uh, of these guys out there would have been caught if they would have also been trying to, you know, wanted by the Secret Service for passing bills uh, or something along those lines, because, or how many people who they, you think were were responsible for, say, robbery, who actually killed those people, we don't know. But we do know in this guy's case. Yeah, so uh, he's passing bills. So he's in a mall, and uh, could you mute your mic, Simeon? So he's passing bills, he's in a mall, and he, he, he shows a bill to a clerk. She... She thinks it's strange. Um, he goes. You know, she, she's not able to get a license plate, but she gives a description of him to the Secret Service. Uh, he's more passing for twenty or thirty. He's not really going for the big score. They were not sure whether he, uh, his fake bills were in circulation or whether he was just passing them. Secret Service actually initially thought there was a, a pilot 
that he was passing bills to or was passing bills to him they followed the pilot they they watched him they checked uh, him give some bills to a clerk then they checked those bills and found out that those were they were um, fine bills and it wasn't the pilot so in Knoxville, Tennessee, phony bills turned up. The manager of one of the shops in Knoxville said that he knew, he actually knew the uh, the manager at one of the stores says that she actually had seen the guy before. Um, that he had seen, she had seen the mall passer, and then uh, once the agent leaves, the um, Mike got, comes into the store and um, hands the clerk a bill for some. Uh, contents then he he leaves the clerk uh gives the the bill over to uh, an assistant and phones um the secret service agent um uh they you know they spotted him coming out of the store he began running out of the store which the store was under construction however he walked into a regular police officer uh, and then told the police officers that actually the the secret service agents that were chasing him had actually checked, cleared him already. The secret service agents were f- shouting at the police officers to keep him there, so they kept him there. Uh, they searched him and found a gun uh, in his front pocket. Uh, and the next morning, uh, suspect's car was was towed to an impounded garage. The suspect's car had a police siren they found and women's underwear uh disturbing evidence was found in the car thousands of dollars in counterfeit currency in small bundles the more they found the more they realized he must be into something else besides counterfeit agents interviewed the suspect to get his personal history um he had a driving license which name uh, roger blanchard the details on the license were different from the one given uh, the car had been stolen, but it was registered to James R. Jones. A search of the FBI records revealed uh, his name, Mike D. Special Agent Fush uh, pulled up the report and realized Mike Stevens still worked in the Bureau, who was the guy who had uh, worked on his case in 1976. Uh, Stevens talked about the morning after Mike's uh, D's arrest in 1976. They entered a darkened room and immediately a movie projector came on and projected pornography. All of them uh, were amateur. They discovered his uh, locked bedroom. And they found uh, him uh, in Knoxville and, he, and, he, and that he was using 30 different aliases. Residents of the apartment building said they knew Mike D and gave him uh, gave them entrance to the room. The agents were in his apartment and found nothing unusual apart from a large quantity of socks in that apartment. They visited the storage units and found out that James D. had visited uh, those units. The clerk told the agent she'd been waiting for him. Uh, one time, Jones left. Apparently, James R. Jones left the locker open with the tools, James R. Jones being Mike D., and she says that she saw burglary tools in there. When they opened it, they surprised to find that it did not have his printing press in there the locals uh, were filled the same type of, of things they found in mike d's car only on a larger scale um so in the storage locker they found hundreds of notes with uh, things that mike had written on it unfortunately his notes offered no clues as to the whereabouts of his counterfeiting printing press mertz heard the tape 
and found the tape in one of the storage lockers, played the tape, and the, the, and the on the tape was a woman begging to be killed. Uh, when I, when he says that when I listened, what's I hear a, a, a woman begging, uh, the tape said things like, don't fuck me in the ass, I wouldn't do this to you, um, if uh, I want to die, and uh, the... The man on the tape, uh, the, the, the initial voice was a woman's voice. The man on the tape sounded calm, matter of fact. He said something like, um, my mother died. And, and Mertz was very shocked uh, by the content of, 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 of the tape. But at this time, they had no known victims. So they had a bunch of evidence, but had no known victims. So at this time, only the Secret Service handled the case, and the FBI wasn't able to take the case on yet. They really, they really uh, had a. Uh, it, it must have been quite, quite something, quite surprising to, to realize that this guy is not just this this prolific, elusive counterfeiter. That that, that he's something, um, something much more uh, frightening and much worse. And one thing you notice also, uh, um, you know, with sexual sadists, uh, as I said, of this guy being a prototype, is that in the recordings of them, like, you know, the, and a lot of them make audio or video recordings, you notice that while their victims are in great anguish uh, or fr and, and fright, that even as they're playing this out, it's very methodical, they're very kind of detached, uh, sometimes very relaxed, sometimes very, you know, they they they're 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 reciting their script. You know, they they this is when it all comes together for them. This is when they're doing exactly what they want to be doing, and narrative is being written and played out exactly as they want it. And they and they're in their element. They're this horrible uh, thing. This is exactly uh, um, where they want to be, and where and where they're and where they are comfortable, and where they are secure in. And they are dictating the action. And so I think that that's why, you know, in, in recordings like this, and a lot of these recordings um, were really horrible. Um, the recordings of, of, of the torture sessions with various women, including this one. And they, and they would beg, you know, to not, uh, you know, to not be uh, raped a certain way or, not, or, or beg to be killed if it was going to continue like this. Um, and that just, that's just giving... The sadist, like extra fuel. That's just t giving them what they want. That'll just make them keep going, and uh, and make them sound that much more um, relaxed or mechanical or or bloodless uh, because they're they're focused and they're and they're and they're uh, full of full of um, energy. That's just the, the the victim's response is driving us, um, and 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 there's going to be a real contrast between how uh, how the victim sounds and how the perpetrator sounds. And, but it's, it's going to be something that you would not have expected from someone whose main thing was, was at least what they thought, passing bills in malls, passing, uh, you know, buying things with fake printed money. Uh, actually, it, it, you know, as they discovered, it is, it is something way worse. But eventually the FBI is going to get involved. Eventually the FBI is going to take over, I think. But... Um, and initially, it's it's just the Secret Service. One of his wives is named Karen, but I... Uh, so, um, 
one of his wives was given so one of his wives is given uh, immunity um from uh any actions that that took place uh with Mike DeBar Laban um she says that all kinds of strange things happened that one time uh she came home from work and there was a young girl Mike had said that she was a druggie and she'd uh, she'd followed him and uh, and he threatened to kill the girl but Mike's wife told him not to do it and then she drove her away another time he had abducted um uh, he he phone called uh, a doctor and, and told them that he had abducted his wife wait no i got i got to check this one as well well, let's uh, scrap that one. But uh, yeah, so she was given immunity, and then uh, initially there was some holdover about it. Uh, she went home. Uh, the two investigators, uh, Mertz and Fuss, went and f- and found her. They they found her in a in a state. Um, in that inner house and she was really scared she, uh, she was scared of them she thought that mike had sent them to kill her um they took her into the car and then she was like babbling nonsense doing all kinds of voices uh apparently it would be found out that mike had actually used a private investigator to find her and uh, possibly raped her um they brought her back in she gave them some more information but she did not know anything about uh the 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 girls and the photos that they they showed her she just relay, relayed some stories about uh extortion um, that she she was personally involved in and um and they kind they kind of left her alone after that they greatly suspect that she was the one who in the tape um, saying, please kill me, uh, please kill me. They showed her lawyer that, and uh, her lawyer said that he didn't support the death penalty, but in, in that moment, if, if Bartleben was in the room with them, uh, he, he would have killed Bartleben. And uh, I think there's one more crime, actually. There is no woman involved in this crime, but it goes to show that the 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 lengths of the psychological torture that he would exact on people. So it's uh, David Starr, and uh, David Starr was a manager of forty of a local Columbia Savings Bank. His forty-two-year-old housemate Joe Rapine was a chemist, but Joe Rapine wasn't feeling well. So instead of going to his Methodist church, David called Joe's doctor, and he took him to see his doctor. Doctor gave him a sedative. When he came back. Uh, he looked in the kitchen window, and the window had been broken. And in the hallway was a man. The man said, "You're going, you're going to be in a bank robbery." He handcuffed both men's wrists behind their back. Uh, he told them if they cooperated, they wouldn't be harmed. David Starr led the man upstairs, where the man permitted his sausages to sit together um, after he had placed um, bags on their heads so that he could take off his own mask. Uh, David was made to stay in the basement for two hours, brought out um, 
he said he hoped he, that David was having an easier time than Joe because Joe had said that uh, if you know the, the the kidnapper had left him with the other kidnapper, uh, the other kidnapper would have killed him. So Mike was trying to um, project to to David that other people were involved. He gave him this elaborate uh, scheme of uh, David going to the bank where he worked, waiting there for some notes, checking the notes, then going into the bank and... Uh, at the beginning and uh, when the vault was open and taking out $37,000. Uh, um, he wanted 75000 but uh, he but David took out 37000 And then um, he ordered uh, David to go to a car park uh, where he saw, where he believed he saw the car again until he came to a burnt ho house and left the ransom uh, payment there um, He David obviously informed Other members of the bank That something was happened to him And that Joe was being held hostage So they allowed him to take the money Nine hours later The police found Joe uh, Rapine's duster uh, the, the abducted party here Abandoned in the park, parking lot In a large uh, apartment complex And then they found uh Joe dead in the trunk with uh, several caliber shots in him. Apparently, the bullets had been fired from different guns. Uh, the ransom money was never discovered. Jimmy? Oh, sorry, I had it muted. He's he's hardly the only uh, the only sadist to uh, to have a particular uh, victim type that you know in the case this case of women, but also target other people. You know, as I get as we'll get into. Um, you know, when you talk about some other similar figures, like Leonard Lake and Charles Ng, two ex-Marines and sadists, they also hunted uh, men, often the husbands of wives they kidnap for sport. So, you know, the, 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 in this all, everything he does with those two guys, with, with everyone he targets for any reason, in a sense is, is sport, but it's also, you know, he also has particular reasons. But he has, he has a very vindictive attitude towards the world in general and and not just women but also other men he'll, he'll showcase it towards and uh it's not uncommon for uh for sadists like this guy to have a particular victim type like in the case this case women but but also be uh vindictive and cruel malicious towards men as well so at this time uh despite uh could you mute your mic so at this time, despite um, there being a significant evidence, uh, there was nothing really linking uh, Mike to the abductions um, until uh, a photo um, of Jensen and Becky um, were discovered um, they had sent the information nationwide and uh, detectives had come back with information about these two particular cases. Now there was no doubt of uh, the Mike DeBart and Laban's uh, involvement in, the, in those particular uh, rapes. And 
and now um you they could progress towards uh not only charging him but f- convicting him on on some of these crimes yeah it, it's it, it, the, <clears throat> i think and 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 also once they have him you know fully in custody they can you know they get a real sense from all the the, the voluminous records that he has in his house you know, not just the pictures and the videos and the audio tapes, but his meticulously documented life and his meticulously documented motivations and plans and um, and even to some degree his philosophy. And uh, I think one of the one of the reasons that uh, that I wanted to cover this case is because he's known as someone who. Uh, had a uh, had had document both in he evidenced in his behavior and in in and in the examinations by the police, but also uh, in his writings, um, he is he is the kind of the urtext you might say in criminology for what it is to for a true sexual sadist. But also he wrote this um, as I mentioned this memo in a sense. This, he wrote this this um, kind of what has been described as a manifesto of sadism, and it goes along with his actions and with the his his evident pathology that has been measured, um, the the things that that uh, that that um, criminologists, both in the medical profession and in the um, in the FBI, uh, had seen about him. That he is the, the he is the kind of the urtext for this, and. Uh, and I think it's important, as part of this and within this series, uh, to get into a little bit. Uh, we've, we've talked about a sexual sadism, which is that um, it's a term that was um, that was uh, codified basically by um, Richard von Kraft Ebing, who we talked about in our third episode on uh, modern on modern German psychology and Peter Curtin. Uh, in 1886, uh, Kraft Ebing. Um, um, coined the term in Psychopathia Sexualis's book, he coined the term sexual sadism, which of course refers to the Marquis de Sade, um, the you know, the, the infamous French aristocrat, you know, who who did various things, you know, like, you know, whipped women and had tied them up and, and stuff. But the Marquis de Sade, you know, while he was a, a, a kind of a villainous guy in many ways, he's not nearly as extreme. Um, he's not as extreme as DeBar Labor. He's not as extreme as, as a lot of these other figures, Peter Curtin, who would come after him. Um, but what? But that wasn't what he was really doing, Kraft Ebing, when he came up with this. He was trying to delineate the specifics of um, sadism and uh, masochism. And in the case of um, of DeBar Laban. Uh, these things go together very much, and I think it also is why he he uh, he does cross dressing, why he is seen by some to um, imitate the behavior uh, of of his father in some ways, and 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 then, but he also has a desire to be, um, according to some, uh, you know, uh, in in the other figure in the, in the relationship um, is represented by his fantasies, but. Um, it, uh, sexual sadism, it was important uh, for Roy Hazelwood and others to uh, delineate uh, for the purposes of, the, of, of criminology in the FBI an updated version of this 
or a more a, a more uh, explicated version. And 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 DeBartolaben was a big um, piece of this, and uh, he was also um, uh, analyzed by um, another guy, uh, Murray Myron, who's a psychology professor, uh, and and described DeBartolaben as a uh, tormented, lonely individual with a low self-image and self-esteem, and uh, and a masochist, and um, you know as well. Uh, now, uh, Kraft Ebing in 1886 saw sadism as being a male pathology and masochism as being a female pathology, and that's not strictly true. Uh, there are more, probably more women who have masochistic fantasies and more men with sadistic fantasies, but that's not strictly true because we saw when you see in DeBartolaben's case that he is as elements of both. But I think in his own words, uh, and, and in the words of Roy Hazelwood, are, are, are more apt to describe someone who I think is very uh, malevolent and very malicious. But, in, but he was a big resource for Roy Hazelwood and other people in doing this. And Roy Hazelwood, uh, for, writing for the FBI, um, uh, described a sexual sadist as, quote, an individual who is aroused by the suffering of another. Not the infliction of pain that is arousing the sadist, but the victim's suffering. And I think that um, that and a sexual. Uh, I, I, I think that this was taken from a quote by Debartelaben from the Sadist Manifesto, and this is where he is, I think, most remembered as this kind of prophet of of, of just evil and 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 and, and sadism. Um, and um, it is important to 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 read this because in 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 his home it was found they found in his home all, basically his entire life documented in 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 uh, memos but the most famous one um is what is referred to as the manifesto of sadism and uh, de bartolaben read was read very deeply in his private time in psychology and criminology and he was trying to understand himself but also he was fascinated by it and he contributed to it i think with this and he and, a, and I quote sadism. De Bartolaben wrote, "The wish to inflict pain on others is not the essence of sadism. The central impulse to have complete mastery over another person, to make him or her a helpless subject of our will, to become the absolute ruler over her, to become her god, to do with her as one pleases, to humiliate her, to enslave her, are means to this end. And the greatest, the most radical aim is to make her suffer, since there is no greater power over another person than that of inflicting pain on her to force her to undergo suffering without her being able to defend herself. The pleasure and the complete domination of another person is the very essence of the sadistic drive. And the FBI uses that as kind of the, the uh, it's like, it's like for people who, who uh, you know, who have a, a, um, a political manifesto that is kind of Debarta Laban's political manifesto, and it's seen kind of as a terrorist's manifesto in some ways, uh, a manifesto of their of their enemy um, by the FBI. But they also, I think, used it to to um, inform their their thought their thinking because it isn't just it 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 is very particular. It's different than someone who is. Um, it's different than someone who is merely brutal or someone who is who merely inflicts pain. It's it's the it's particularly the response of the victim, you know, dictating the um, you know, being dictated by the by the uh, by the offender. It is specifically that. It, it is specifically the the power the godlike power that is that is that is uh, that that the experience gives them because 
it's not just about you know an animal inflicts pain, but it's not about it's it, this is specifically a psychological thing. But in the case of Debartelabin, it's also that he can't get an erection, and the thing was is that, as Roy Hazelwood noted, this is uh, has psychological uh, function, but it also is that the the response of the victim to his assault is what uh, gives him, along with saying certain words during it, is what uh, gives him a uh, the furtherance of his erection. And, and, and that, that's what makes DeBartolabin the definition of a sexual sadist. Uh, did you also say that uh, Hazelwood said that, uh, that for no other sexual crime is well planned and method- methodically executed, commuted by anger, uh, excitation, rapist. Every detail is carefully thought out and rehearsed, either literally or in the offender's fantasies. Weapons and instruments, transportation, travel routes, recording devices, bindings, virtually every phase has been pre-planned with more, with one notable exception. Uh, a sexual sadist will practice his brutality on his wife or girlfriend, but most of the victims are strangers. While they meet certain criteria established by the rapist to fulfill his desires and fantasies, they generally will not be associated with him in any known to others. This is also part of his plan. He wants no ties that will connect him to the victim. Of all Hazelwood's ca- categories, the only type who may assault primarily out of sexual desire is the so-called opportunist, opportunistic rapist who usually commits his offense in the course of committing some other crime altogether. Yeah, one thing is is that I think Hazelwood uh, describes the sexual sadist as the great white shark of sexual predators. When he strikes, there's no question of sexual sadist. <laughs> I think he said that um, this is really, really rare, even amongst uh, serial killers of this kind. Uh, it's a, it's like, yeah, it's a really, really rare thing. It's like a great white shark. Go on. It, it, it's, it is rare. Um, seven to ten percent, I think, of sexual crimes. Uh, he, you know, and 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 when you consider that these are violent crimes, that that's actually a real reasonably low number, and it's very particular because. Um, you know, the, um, Roy Hazelwood and Stephen Michaud, who wrote the, the, the books about DeBarta Laban, would note that, for instance, Ted Bundy, who, who, was, um, who did experiment with, with, uh, with sadism, who was brutal and who was sometimes cruel, uh, particularly, he's not a sexual sadist because it's, uh, you know, for him it was all about, about being the god of the mice. Um, you know, and the thing is, is that Sexual sadists, while they may experiment with animal cruelty, they're not interested so much in the animal's response. They're, you know, sexual sadism is predicated on the response of, on controlling and dictating the response of a particular human being. And um, being the god over that world, it does not okay just to have mice. Ted Bundy also, his, um, his uh, sexual function was not tied to the sadism, we know that he was a pr- primarily a necrophile, like Edmund Kemper and Jeffrey Dahmer. Um, he, 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 he's he. The, whereas someone like DeBarta Laban is a perfect example of this because he he dictates this scenario, and he's he's laid out this this sort of vision of the world, kind of like where he's the god, and the response of the victim, as well as some of the things he says to them, or they say, and he asks them to say to him, they had the effect of. Increasing his or, or maintaining his erection, and um, and but but he is specifically about the response of the victim. Like BTK, he is specific, and, and like a lot of other guys like this, and you know it. it and and you know when you're look comparing uh, sexual sadists, um, 
you know, I think there are particular types. Um, and and one uh, but, wants... Um, yeah, He's also, as you say, he's also masochistic. I mean, you can hear on the on the recording, he records himself. So he records himself saying, I, I want you to do it, do it, do it. He screams on the cassette, bite it, bite it. Ah, oh, you're biting it right now. Oh, the pain sharp. I love the pain. Bite it harder. Suck it. Bite it. Make the nipple bleed. I hate myself. I hate myself. So he yeah. The kistic element, you know, attached to his um, sexual sadism to other people as well. Yeah, the uh, the um, Murray Miron, the psychology professor who analyzed him, said that in his evaluation that de Bartolaben identified with his father and resented his mother, which is not surprising, uh, but that he... Um, his sort of he had a Freudian analysis in a sense uh, where uh, where he had where in in some ways he you know he he was the one to be humiliated and 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 you know by a, sort of some stand-in for his father and uh, even though he's he's controlling all this stuff and um, and and so he's a masochist uh, but uh, who can, engages in compulsive sadistic fantasies in part to maintain his ego. But also key to his fantasy, to some degree, is 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 the masochism. And I think another reason why uh, he is seen as this kind of prototype is that he combines all these elements. He's also described, you know, that that whole description of the anger anger excitation rapist is a, is one of a number of different types of rapists that the FBI has has laid out, and that's the one that's most associated with a sexual sadist. But it's very very specifically accurate in DeBartolaben's case because he is he's very clearly angry and very clearly excited by this whole process whereas some of these other guys you think it's just the cruelty or whatever but um it it's specifically tied to his uh sexual function all the stuff is has that particular function so he is he the excitation is the literal sexual excitation as it ties into his anger and self-hatred and hatred of others. And it all plays into the, his, his, uh, his fantasy. Um, but he also does have this, um, you know, he, he has this, this, uh, this, this need for total control, uh, you know, uh, which is, you know, which I think is manifested in, in, in uh, his entire uh, relationship to the world, his 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 need for dominance, his need for control in in his in all forms of his criminality, and in in how he controls every aspect of of his these sexual encounters. Now it is to some degree because he has erectile dysfunction, but it is also because he wants you know to dictate everything. And um, well, it's just like Hazelwood said, you know the. The sexual, uh, could you mute your mic? It's just as Hazelwood says, you know, the sexual sadist uh, commands every part of the situation, every detail, every iota. He 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 tends very much to to play God. Um, in in the situation. Yeah, I mean, I I think, and I think when you look at the different types of sexual sadists, we've had. You know, Harvey Glattman was kind of like a, the the level one. He is he is the he, you have the basics of that. You have BTK an elaboration on this, and this you have more of the 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 uh, full elucidation of of its connection to his, his psychology and of its um, playing out his psychology. 
But um, I think also when you have you talk about his his inadequate ego, you talk about the way that for a time, you know, the sadist becomes uh, the kind of the 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 god of the action, um, and you know, and. Uh, For for a time, the sadist becomes um, the 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 victim becomes the 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 broken person, the, the and and the sadist is is no longer is in that moment not broken. He's all put together, and you can hear it in, in those recordings of Debarta Laban, and um, and 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 so he has displayed a, um, a mastery of predation, a mastery of life, uh, and and he has uh, taken total control. Um, over uh, the life of another person, and you see some variety of this in pretty much all se- um, criminal sexual sadists. You see some variety of of this along, you know, and the anger excitation, and um, and they they uh, and and if you can make someone not just feel pain, but you make someone suffer, you know, then you have you you know. And you and control their response and control the whole thing, then you cannot be inadequate. You cannot be insecure. You cannot be the broken person. You will, uh, you will actually be the the um, the god of that universe, and they and your victim becomes broken. So it is kind of like what you see, and you'll see a variety of this with Gacy next week. You'll you'll see this with other guys that we cover, and. Also, I think that it's it's worth uh, noting that when you that that it is it kind of it's it's the perfect explication of this 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 sense of, of grandeur and narcissistic fancy that they have. You know, um, a number of these guys. I don't think with Debarta Laban this is the case, but a number of these guys. Um, you know that you, and it's worth it's worth bringing this up in the context of sexual sadism. Um, Leonard Lake is an example of this. Christopher Wilder, uh, Robert Burdell, the Kansas City Butcher, were inspired by this novel, The Collector, by John Foles. It's a popular novel, but inspired a lot of serial killers. And the, and the collector is about a butterfly collector who is socially and personally inadequate. And he kidnaps a woman and he holds her with the idea that she's going to fall in love with him. And then he kills her. And that and I think that you know at the end of the story and, and gets another one. That's where it becomes a serial killing handbook. But I think what all these guys are kind of like they're writing their version of the collector. They're they're getting they're getting trophies. They're getting um, they're but not even so much the trophy uh, the, for their collection. They're 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 collecting their remade version of their own life that's remade in the context of of collecting their um, their prize and holding it in the way they want to do it and having the whole thing play out. Where you see with DeBarta Laban, you see everything has to play out a particular way, but he can control that and make sure that it does. He has control over it. And in that sense, he also has control over his physical uh, problems with his erection. But he everything is under his control. Every, the way it all plays out is dictated, including the response. So that's why it's important that the victim respond in a particular way. And I think when they're begging for their to be killed, begging to not be fucked in the ass, begging to have a particular thing that keep that's like just as that everything is coming together um in 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 his world and he's a in he's an inadequate insecure person 
fundamentally, even though he's 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 a, a in some ways a, a minor criminal mastermind. It doesn't matter because he has to do all these things to to make to get an erection and keep it. He has to do all these things to keep uh, to boost bolster his ego and make every and make the 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 um and make his life uh, make sense or 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 come to some sort of fruition in in the, these moments. And it has to, of course, look, you know, like it's not surprising he's a drug addict too because. You know he needs that he needs those drugs to um, manage himself, and um, and 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 so he is he is in his in his uh, victimology in his life in his writings he is in 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 every way in his pathology he is the exemplar of what a sexual sadist is. Now I think there are even some someone who are even worse, um, possibly. Although I haven't heard those I don't know too much about those videos, but. He is he is the kind of the definition and and the FBI still uses that manifesto as a way to understand what this is from the inside out. Uh, and he, he he sees it. He sees exactly what it is that, you know, that that, you know, he can't be a person, but he can be the God of this universe that he creates and he can make his subjects bend to his will in a particular way for a particular way and then make his body work the, the, the way it doesn't work normally. Uh, it, it's worth it's worth noting as we end this that the Bartolaban was you know he was convicted he he has tried he tried he, he 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 died about 10 years ago in jail he 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 lives on in these horrible things and and uh, he tr of course tried to uh, as most of these guys do to represent himself in court to to get himself um, you know out of jail in various ways but he uh, th that was not successful and in, th in his writings I think he 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 is a his life he is a, he's a kind of a a true dark prophet of this kind of pathology and a true a, a true um, uh, example of, of what a sexual sadist is and and yes it was difficult and we could have gone even more detail if we if we knew it but i'm kind of glad i don't i i know as much as i need to know about this guy and i think now you do too all right so um for myself toby from simeon thank you for listening to this episode of the golden age of serial murder see us on the next episode when we'll have uh you know other uh, exciting um uh, criminals and transvestites and all sorts of um, anecdotes for you everything will be involved yeah <laughs> <laughs> all right Thanks, guys, and see you again on the next one. Bye. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>